Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together, please, to Romans chapter 8. Our text today, verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. I want to thank many of you for your cards and emails and words of encouragement as we've studied verse by verse through the book of Romans since August. Uh, I hope you, like I, have had a personal renewal as we've had the privilege of uh, studying and preparation preach these messages. I pray you've been encouraged and challenged in your faith so far. Now, Lord willing, we're going to uh, finish the first half of Romans next Sunday, that is chapters 1 through 8, and then we're going to uh, shift our focus to preparing our hearts and minds for Resurrection Sunday, which is in April. But uh, that's later. Let's focus on today's text, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Paul says, we know that all things work for the good of those who love him, for those who've been called according to his purpose. Now, verse 28 is one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, both by believers and by non-believers alike. It is the fodder for everything from bumper stickers to cross stitch on the wall. But I fear that many well-meaning people have misunderstood it and applied it inappropriately over the years. And we certainly don't ever want to be guilty of those things. And where folks tend to go wrong in interpreting scripture generally is by trying to carve a verse out of its intended context and treating it as if it fell out of the sky like a meteorite and disconnected from anything that came before it or came after it. But this verse is set in the context of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. And the obvious overarching theme of the letter is the doctrine of justification by faith. The sub-theme here in chapter 8 is the doctrine of Christian assurance. Specifically, how the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, brings confidence and assurance to believers, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. We saw last week that as believers, we are still in the flesh, and we are weak, and we sometimes don't even know how to pray appropriately. And in those times, the Holy Spirit comes along around the other side, remember, and helps bear that prayer burden. Now, Paul says here in chapter 8 that even these circumstances that cause us not to know how to pray are subject to God's sovereign purposes, which he has revealed, of course, to his apostles, and they in turn have written down in what we have is the New Testament. So let's begin our message today by breaking down word by word, phrase by phrase, this famous 28th verse of Romans chapter 8. It begins with a conjunction, and That is, in addition to what I've said so far about the Spirit's help, um, we, that's a plural personal pronoun, and we need to know what the antecedent of we. Paul is including himself, isn't he? 
He's writing to Christians, and he is a Christian, and he's saying, we Christians know something. Now note that he says, we don't feel that God is able to work all things together for good. He doesn't even say we always perceive in the here and now that God is working all things together for good. He states it as a matter of propositional truth. We know something. And what we know is that our God is able to work all things together for good for those who love him. Now, we're often challenged by the enormity of that verse. In fact, last week, while I was preparing this message, I had to take a two-hour break in the middle of the day to go to a funeral service for a six-year-old child. And then the next day, I got a text from my college roommate who teaches at a very small college, Christian college in New Mexico, to say that the golf team at the school that he taught at lost numerous members in a tragic vehicle accident. That's just last week. Now, that week is not altogether out of the ordinary. We hear things like this all the time, and yet here is Paul saying that all things, all things, God is able to work together for good for those that love him. In fact, the way it really says in the Greek is in, in all things, God works for the good. And we need to be very careful here. We are not saying that all things are good. We would never say the death of a child or a tragic accident is good in and of itself. We're saying that God is sovereign even over those tragedies. And a further warning is never ascribe evil to God. His sovereignty means that nothing can thwart his declared purposes. Scripture says a curse, a woe upon those who call evil good and good evil. Don't say God did evil or caused evil. But in his sovereignty, we must realize that no matter what happens, because God is sovereign, he either caused it or allowed it. And so if he didn't cause it, he allowed it. And then he says, God works all things, all things. That includes your sin. That includes war. That includes good things. That includes his attributes. That includes all things he's able cause to work together for good. Now, mark this phrase, of those who love him. Underline it, highlight it, whatever you need to do, because it is the key to understanding the entire chapter. Romans 8.28, contrary to what you might have heard and believed, is not a universal promise to all humanity that in the end everything is going to work out for everybody. Rather, this is a statement of truth for a very specific group of people. Now remember how we said that in God's economy, there are only two groups of people in the world. We can call them the lost, we can call them the saved, the sheep, the ghosts, the righteous, the wicked. In this phrase, he says, those that love him implying that there are those who do not love him, right? So two categories of people, but it's still the same two groups of people. And from our perspective, the church, Christians, the elect are those who love him. Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. But from God's perspective, he says who have been called according to his purpose. Same group of people. Those who have been called according to his purpose are not a subgroup of those who love him. It's the one and the same. Just another way of describing the same people. The ones that love God are the ones that are called according to his purpose. But don't bury the lead of Romans 8, 28. We tend to focus on all things are working together for good. But I would argue that the greatest news in this verse is the final phrase, according to God's purpose. 
Last week I said that one of the most attractive things that Christians have to offer a lost and dying world is that we hold the answer to life's most frequently asked questions. Questions like, how did we get here? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Why is there pain and suffering and death in the world? Because of the fall, Genesis 3. All of those questions, though, come under a greater question that everyone with a working mind has. And that is, what is the meaning of life? Not how did we get here, but why are we here? Famous philosophers like Nietzsche says there is no meaning of life, and he followed a movement called nihilism, nothingness. And on the other end of the continuum, there's that say the only meaning of life is how much pleasure you get out of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, and that's called hedonism. But you name your ism, all of them are attempts to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? And so the great truth we find at the end of Romans 9.28 is there is a meaning to life. We start with that. There is purpose to everything. Paul says these things are working in life according to God's purposes. So what is God's purpose? Well, you know that I have an interest in history, and I taught history for a number of years in high school. But you may not know that my love and interest in history is related to my love and interest in biblical theology. Because what the Bible teaches is that all the events of human history are not disordered and chaotic as the Eastern religions and philosophies teach. We're not moving in some inescapable circle of reality. Bible teaches that all the events of history are moving to one glorious consummation event. The ultimate redemption of a group of people from every tribe and tongue and people group in the world by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ and for his glory. That's the meaning of life. That's the meaning of human history. And we call it here God's eternal plan of redemption. Eternal because it started in eternity past before any of us were born in the secret councils of the Most High. And it continued through creation as recorded in the book of Genesis, through the Old Covenant, through the New Testament, to the church age, and will reach its climax at the resurrection of the dead when Christ rules and reigns universally. And as Paul said, every knee will bow of things in heaven on earth and under the earth and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of human history is moving to that consummation moment. So next time you see a tank rolling across your television screen when you're watching the news, realize that in reality that is God's sovereignty on display. We're not saying war is Good, it is evil, and we need to declare it to be so, especially when dictators behave the way they do. But we also need to declare that God is more sovereign than Putin. God is more sovereign than any evil man or any evil purpose, and that evil ultimately will come under the sovereignty of God, and God will take that evil and accomplish his purposes to bring himself glory by redeeming the elect. Now, that was the introduction. <laughs> Let's get to the sermon. The title of the message today is The Golden Chain of Assurance. Theologians have referred to verses 29 and 30 as the golden chain forever. 
Sometimes you hear it's the golden chain of redemption, the golden chain of salvation. I call it the golden chain of assurance because of its supreme value. That's why it's called golden. And because how each descriptive word is linked to all the others. And that one logically leads to the next and they cannot be separated from one another. I call it the golden chain of assurance because if applied to your life, will lash your soul with confidence to the cross and give you incredible assurance of salvation. That's what chapter 8 is all about. God wants you to have assurance of salvation, and here's how you have it. We saw a couple of weeks ago through sustained progressive sanctification. From our perspective, we see fruit in our life that gives us confidence that we are in Christ. But from God's perspective, He is keeping you saved. And He's going to show us how He does that today. Now, this chain of assurance was forged by God in heaven. And he is the source and supplier of salvation. And each of these words we're about to look at describe his action. The elect are those being acted upon. That's the church, true Christians. And whose identity is derived from God's action. And I'm going to tell you, these are deep doctrinal words. And I don't apologize for that at all. I've been preaching to God's people for 27 years, and the thing that I am more convinced of than ever is the need for good and sound doctrine. And what our pastors labor day and night at this church to do is to help you rightly understand God and His purposes by giving you sound doctrinal foundations and skeletons upon which to build your life and your worldview. We need a common vocabulary of words such as the ones we're going to look at today so that we can understand one another so we can understand God and His purposes, and so uh, we don't apologize for teaching doctrine. So let's look again at verse 29 and 30. So he starts with the word for. He's leading, of course, from verse 28, where God is able to work all things together for good for those that loved Him who are called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is nothing more or less than the description of a believer. And so he uses words like foreknew. That's from God's perspective. And from our perspective, if we were those he foreknew, that makes us the foreknown. You see how this is going to work. And so let's start with the first description of a Christian. We were foreknown. Verse 29, for those God foreknew. Now first we have to look at this uh, pronoun, those he foreknew. Those means out of a larger group. Those the Lord who in eternity past chose to set his saving love upon. Again, this is not a universal promise to all humanity. He's speaking of a specific group that the Bible calls in dozens of places the elect. Now, to elect means to choose. Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. So, if there's any choosing that's done, who did it? He, God, when? Before we were born. So, Paul uses this term that's translated to the English, foreknowledge. But it's much more than God looking into a crystal ball, looking into the future to see who would love Him because we've just established all the way through so far the first half of the book of Romans that left to our own devices, none of us would choose him. 
Because we're dead in trespasses and sin. So even if you take the word foreknowledge to just look into the future, that doesn't change anything because none of us would choose him if he didn't give us the faith and repentance. So what does it mean? It means to know intimately, to set one's love upon. We see that in both the Old and New Testament. The book of Amos, we read it, that God alone has chosen Israel. In fact, that word foreknowledge is translated in the Hebrew to English as chosen, not foreknew. Same thing. In the New Testament, he says that he chose to put his saving love upon a certain group of people. Paul just read from Peter, and he called this people distinct and royal and set apart from all others in the world. Now, Paul has already established these truths, and he hammers it home when he says God intimately knew us before we were ever born. That is, he intentionally set his salvific love upon those he chose to save. Second, not only are we foreknown, we are predestined. Remember, this is a chain that's linked together. If we were foreknown, then we also were predestined. That's the first link in the chain. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers and sisters. So predestined, let's look at that word. You know what the prefix pre means. It means before. Destiny is where we end up. And so he chose us before we were born so that we would arrive at a final destination point. Remember, all of human history is moving inextricably towards a consummation event. This all works together. So what is that consummation event that all of history is moving towards? Well, it's in two parts here. He says, number one, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. This is the final destiny of every believer. Now, we start that at the moment of justification. God declares us righteous positionally, even though we continue to sin. And for the rest of our lives, until we die or Christ comes for his church, we are making progress, becoming more like the image of Christ, being separated from sin. But we know that if Christ doesn't come in our lifetime, we're going to die. And that ultimately we will receive resurrected bodies where we are free ultimately not only from the penalty of sin, God's wrath, but the power of sin through sanctification and ultimately the very presence of sin. And we call that glorification. And that is our destiny. Nothing can stop it. It's going to happen. Does that give you assurance of salvation? That's what Paul's going to comment on next week when he says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's, the basis of that is found in this verse because we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Sometimes we have uh, people who visit our church from other places or church shopping, and uh, I will speak to them out in the hallway for a few minutes after church, and after they've come two or three weeks in a row, they often say things like, Pastor, this church is, is different can't quite put my finger on it and without being too presumptuous I think I can help you um, there are two competing views philosophically within the evangelical church writ, writ large that informs philosophy of ministry which includes how we teach and preach the Bible one very top popular view 
our philosophy of ministry is that God's highest aim for your life is your happiness. And so most of the teaching and preaching is designed to teach you how to be happier in this life, how to get the most out of this life, how to have your best life now. And then there's the truth. The other philosophy of ministry that is informed by verses like the ones we just read together, that God's highest aim for your life is not your happiness. God's highest aim and purpose for your life is your holiness. And this verse and many others like it inform our philosophy of ministry and our teaching style here at First Baptist. And let me just finish up Ephesians 1.4. I quoted the first half of it earlier. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, comma, that we would be happy and fulfilled. Is that what it says? No. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the, earth, the world, comma, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, we're going to look at the doctrine of predestination election much more next fall when we get to chapter 9. So if the doctrine of predestination makes you mad now, you just wait till then, you're going to be furious. <laughs> so there's another word, though, to describe the next link in the chain. We are foreknown, we are predestined, and thirdly, we are called. He says, and those he predestined, he also called. Now, there are two uses or perspectives on this word calling as it relates to the gospel, indeed all of Holy Writ. Um, one is, is what we call the general call. This is why when we give an invitation at the end of the service, I say, whosoever will may come, because that's what the Bible says, right? And we call all men and women, boys and girls, to repent of sin, believe on Jesus. But there's also what we call the effectual call, and that's what he speaks of here when he describes believers as the called out ones. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. The effectual call brings about faith and repentance. When God looked over the void and the darkness before he created anything, there was nothing, right? We believe in ex nihilo creation. God didn't go down to the Home Depot and get all the materials together and start hammering, right? He spoke the word. He called the universe into existence. He said, let there be, and what? There was. That's the effectual call. When Jesus stood outside the grave of his friend Lazarus, who was dead and had been dead for days, and his friends were right when they said, by now he stinketh. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came forth. This is the effectual calling. This is what happens when we hear a gospel message and God in his sovereignty grants us faith and repentance. He calls us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. And that happens at a moment in time. So remember I said it started in eternity past and is working towards that consummation moment in future history. And so in eternity past, before any of us were born, 
God foreknew us. He set his love upon us and he predestined that we were going to end up in the image of his son. And in human time and space, he called us out. And that is the next word. He justified us. That's the next link in the chain. Those he predestined, he also called out of death into life. And those he called out of death to life, he also justified. That is, he declared us righteous at a moment of time. That's what I mean when I said the righteous judge of the universe takes his gavel and pounds the podium and says, forgiven, not guilty, not owing a debt anymore. Not because we weren't guilty, but because his son paid our price on the cross. And we are joined to his son, how? By faith. Paul says, salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. The faith is not of yourself. God had to call you out of death and give you the faith to believe. And God grants us faith and repentance in response to hearing a gospel message. Those he called, he also justifies. He comes right back to the overarching theme of the entire book, the doctrine of justification. This legal term, which means to declare righteous, forgiven, redeemed. And then the final link in the chain is glorification. Remember, he's describing all Christians, not some super class of Christians, All believers are foreknown by God, predestined by God, called by God in space and time, justified in the eternal courtroom, and ultimately the purpose of that is that we might be glorified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Note there, what grammatical tense is he using? Past tense. Isn't that amazing? That in the mind of God, who exists outside of what we know as time and space, in his perspective, it has already happened. Now, from our perspective, we are waiting eagerly, Paul says, groaning with anticipation. Remember, the earth is groaning, and we are groaning, and the Holy Spirit is lifting our prayer to the Father with groans. But in his mind, it's as good as it's already happened. And so Paul here and in other places uses the past tense. He also glorified us. But the point is the same. And that is all of human history is moving towards a consummation event of God's purposes and plans. Remember I said it's in two parts. The first part is that we would be holy And the second part, he says, is that Christ would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Now, we don't really relate to that much anymore because most people uh, in their wills give an equal inheritance to all their children. But in the ancient world and for almost all human history, the firstborn was a place of honor. And the firstborn son received the true inheritance, and he shared it then with his siblings according to his goodwill. And this is what happens. When we say we're joint heirs with Jesus, we're not saying we are Jesus, are we? We're not saying we're gods. We're not saying we're equal with Jesus in every way. What he does is takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and places us into the kingdom of God's dear son, and there we get the joy and the privilege of 
serving him and worshiping him for all of eternity. Friends, that is the purpose of God. That's what all of human history is about. That God is going to put a new nation together, Peter says, that's different and distinct. And here's the good news. It's not based on where you live. It's not based on political boundaries. It's not based by ethnic or genetic DNA. It's not based on what language you speak. It's not based on whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. To be a part of this kingdom, you have to be chosen by God. And he says he's choosing people from every tribe and people group from all over the world. And that's why we should have such confidence in evangelism. I see Brother Lawrence sitting here on the second row. Lawrence, you remember years ago when the International Ambition Board assigned to First Baptist Church an unreached people group called the Yolunka. Now, you know that Africa was divided up like so many pieces of cake by the imperialist countries of the world. And so those boundaries have nothing to do with tribal designation or cultural identity. And so the Yolunkas, some of them lived in Senegal and some of them in Mali and some other countries, but they identified as a particular ethnic group. And they lived way back in the middle of nowhere. And Brother Lawrence was the first white man many of them ever seen. And they came back from that first vision group and people got saved right away. And I had people coming up to me and saying, Pastor, does it shock you? Does it surprise you that these people that had never heard the gospel, who had never seen a white person until last week, got saved after hearing the gospel? I said, it would have shocked me if they hadn't have gotten saved. Why? Because God says he is bringing together a distinct group of people from every tribe and people group. And when we send missionaries out in the world, we can't save anybody. But we go with confidence knowing God has promised that some will be saved. Amen? And that's why even though we can go years as William Carey did in India without any visible fruit, we know that ultimately there will be because God has decreed it to be and His sovereign purposes can never be thwarted. But what does that have to do with you who have to get up and go to work in the morning? You're not going to go to deepest, darkest Africa most likely this year. But these verses have something to say for us. Here is why and how every Christian on planet Earth can and should have assurance from these verses. Number one, it tells us that we didn't make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth. <laughs> right? And it tells us that your salvation does not depend on your ability to choose wisely from a buffet of world religions. I heard about a man who stood up to pray in an assembly such as this. And he started his prayer like this. He says, Lord, I thank you that I had the good sense to choose you. No. Heresy. Rather, God chose to set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to ultimately become like Jesus. And what's Jesus like? He is holy and separate. He called you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he gave to you his own Holy Spirit as a down payment of a future fully realized inheritance in glory. And he is guarding that inheritance at this very moment in heaven. And he puts his personal guarantee and seal of promise on it. 
He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life with indelible ink and declared you righteous in space and time through faith in Christ. And if you die before Jesus returns, you will rise with a new glorified body. And if you are alive when he arrives, you will get a new body on the way up. God is sovereign and nothing can thwart his righteous plan and purpose. And that is the precious golden chain of Christian assurance. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, it thrills our hearts to ponder these amazing truths. And Lord, we don't claim to have perfect knowledge of this. Men and women have debated these truths forever, but we can't escape the words predestination and election are in the Bible. They're there. They have meaning. Father, I suspect that the, the greatest purpose of that is to show us that you're God and we're not. Lord, I thank you that uh, you chose a group of people before we were ever born, not because of any good you saw in us or any potential you saw in us. As we'll study through the rest of this book, there was none. We were not any better than anyone else, but for your own purposes, to bring your son glory, you did it and you are doing it. Until Jesus returns, our task is to take the gospel to all men and women, boys and girls, and allow your spirit to do his sovereign work. Father, I thank you that we've seen fruit of that promise already in this year, 2022. And we anticipate more. And Lord, we pray you'd save more and more, not for our gratification, but for your glory. Father, I am... Uh, relieved and blessed to know that what's going on in the world at large in warfare and rumors of war and earthquakes and wildfires and what's going on locally when I see my friends bury their children when I hear about tragedies of all kind it's not vain it's not meaningless all things are working together for those who love you, who are the called according to your purposes. Father, may that blessed truth inspire us to live lives of holiness and purity. Inspire us, Lord, to works of service. Inspire us, Lord, to greater depth in missions and evangelism so that you may receive the most glory. And we pray it in and through the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.